Well, friends, this morning I was planning on starting a series on the Sermon on the Mount, but I am delaying that series for about a month. Yes, we're going to get to the Sermon on the Mount, and yes, we're going to take about four months to go through it, so we're going to have plenty of time. But I have felt the need for us to do a four, about a four-week series on what it means to be the church, what it means to be the church. I think a lot of churches are experiencing a little bit of identity crisis, understandably, in this season. They haven't been able to meet together for Sunday services for some time, and especially for our church. I mean, adult discipleship, the Sunday worship service, patio time, that was just the core, that was so core to us. And so many of us are just feeling the loss of that. Many churches are feeling the loss of their normal rhythms of, of gathering and worship and caring for one another. And, and then you add to it all the kind of awkwardness of like, now that things are starting to open up a little bit in our society, like how do we relate to each other again? Some of us have, have responded to the different things in our world in different ways. And so what does it mean for us to kind of go forward together as the church now? And and so I think there's lots of questions around identity and what it means to be the church and who God has called us to be in this particular season that are really important for us to maybe spend a little bit of time on. So what I'm going to do is do four weeks on what it means to be the church. This week, we're going to look at Ephesians 4, the church's one body. Next week, we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the church as a Eucharistic fellowship. And then we're going to look at 1 Peter 2 the church as a holy priesthood. And then we're going to look at, finish up with Hebrews chapters 12 and 13, the true nature of the church's worship, true worship. So this morning we begin with one body, Ephesians 4. Now the image of a human body is used by Paul throughout his letters as a metaphor for the church, for what it means to be the church in unity and diversity. I think Paul uses this image for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, he wants to communicate something really central about the gospel. Like, what does it look like when the gospel breaks into the world? It gives birth to a new humanity. So he uses the image of a human body. The gospel gives birth to a new humanity. And the other thing that I think he wants to communicate and emphasize with this image is that this new humanity, for all of its variety and all of its diversity, and this was one of the distinctive things of the early church, actually, that was radical in the ancient world, that like people of all different socioeconomic statuses, people of all different races, people of different genders, people of different family backgrounds, all came together in their diversity to form an organic unity, to be one body. So according to Paul in Ephesians 4, how do we stay united as one body if that is in fact what and who we are in God's eyes? Like what kind of oneness does God intend for his people to enjoy, intend for us to enjoy? And I think in our passage, Paul gives us kind of four truths about the nature of the unity that we're to enjoy. And the first one is simply that unity kind of, it has a lot to do with the quality of our character and our conduct. We see this right away in the first in the first few verses. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he describes what sort of character is worthy of the Christian calling. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, note that word, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I was speaking with our own Dennis Ockham this last week, and he said to me that Richard Mao has this phrase, Richard Mao is somebody who works uh, part of Fuller's Institute for kind of culture and faith uh, interaction. And he has this phrase, convicted civility. In other words, the unity that Paul is describing is not just like a bland uniformity. Everybody happens to believe the same things and think the same things and say the same things necessarily. But there is a convicted civility or convicted charity in the way that we relate to one another. And I think it's really interesting that Paul begins here. He does not begin it by talking about the unity of the church in terms of institutional structures or particular worship preferences or styles or talking about particular political convictions that we may or may not align with. He talks about character. Paul talks about moral virtue. And I think this is really important because we live in a culture that I think wants to convince us that unless we vote the same way and share the same political alliances, then we cannot truly be united with one another. And I've seen this in many ways. I've talked to people who have said that the political dividing lines have, have divided families and they have divided friendships and they have divided churches. And I think Paul in this passage is saying a loving but a definitive no. <laughs> no to that. He says, no, that is not worthy of our calling. As a follower of Jesus, you have received a different calling, which requires a different way of living and relating. Now, it's important to remember that for Paul, this, this language of calling is a really significant thing. It evokes a huge imaginative world of what God is on about from eternity past to eternity future. And so when he talks about us living with a character and qualities that promote unity, this for him is no random little parochial thing. This for him is part of what God is on about in the cosmos. I mean, in Ephesians 1, Paul talks about God's mysterious will, which he says he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, i.e. like God's purpose in all of history is this, says Paul, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So it's no mistake that when Paul goes on to, to unpack the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about God uniting himself with human beings this horizontal reconciliation of God with alienated humanity. And then he says that gives birth to a vertical reconciliation between fractured humanity, where people of different races and different cultures and different languages are brought together in a unity that is made by Christ Jesus himself. And then Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that one of the unique vocations of the church is to be this multicultural, multi-ethnic, diverse people of God that proclaim to the world that all the riches of Christ's goodness and glory are for all people, Jews and Gentiles. And so you get this profound sense as Paul unpacks this cosmic vision of the gospel in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, that unity is not some random thing that we take or leave. It is at the heart of God's purposes for the world. 
things are going to be united in Christ one day, Paul says. And so if you want to follow Christ, then show the world what that unity looks like right now. Live a life, Paul says, worthy of the calling that you have received. And he says, with all humility, with the humble recognition of the God-given worth and value of other people, with all gentleness, with the ability to control one's strength and power and to use it at the right time for the right purposes. With all patience, says Paul, long-suffering towards people who aggravate you and annoy you. (laughs) Endurance in the midst of really frustrating and painful circumstances. Giving people and communities space and time to mature. Bearing with one another in love, says Paul. Like going beyond just mutual tolerance. Like I'll just let you be you as long as you yet let me be me. More than that, Paul says. Actively and constructively seeking the welfare of other people and of the community. Bearing with one another in love. And Paul says all of this because we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that language of maintain. It's not that we create Christian unity, spirit unity. It's that we maintain what God has already created in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. I was reading a book this last week recommended to me by someone called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And in this book, this person was sharing a story about how eager the early church was to maintain this brotherly and this sisterly, this familial unity. And this book shared a story that in the early church, there were, um, there were examples of Christian martyrs who had been placed in the Roman Colosseum for their faith, to be persecuted for their faith, basically, in the Roman Colosseum. And they would be physically abused by wild animals. It's a horrible scene to think about. And the crowds in this particular event were cheering in the midst of all this, cheering for the Christians to be abused and made a public spectacle of by the wild animals. And these Christians at one point were gathered together, beaten and battered into a group before the crowds, and the soldiers were called in with their swords to deliver the final blow to their lives. And as the story goes, as they awaited their death, it was said that these Christians, men and women, slaves and masters, rich and poor, gathered together and shared a kiss of peace before the crowds. They had done it hundreds of times before, as they had gathered together around the Lord's table to share the Eucharist, extending the peace of God. And so under pressure, they could think of nothing else to do but extend to each other a final kiss of peace. And I was, that hit me this week. (laughs) That is, that is an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, imagine how different our churches would look if we had that sort of eagerness. I mean, imagine how different our governments would look if we had the sort of humility that Paul's talking about. Imagine how different our city streets would look if we had the gentleness that Paul is commending. Imagine how different our our response to this pandemic would 
would possibly look if we had the patience that Paul is talking about. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul is saying, live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You, of all people in the world, ought to be the place where the world can look and say, that is what it looks like to be a fully alive, fully flourishing, fully united human community. Our unity depends, says Paul, in part on the quality of our character. But it's not created by that. It's maintained by that. It's created by the unity of our God, says Paul. Ephesians verses four through six, chapter four, four through six. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The unity of the church, the unity of our relationships is grounded in the unity of God. And notice how emphatically Paul is wanting to emphasize this unity. He repeats the word one seven times, seven being the biblical number for perfection. He uses all three Greek words for one, haste, mia, and hen. And he names all three persons of the Holy Trinity, the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father. And so he says there is a perfect unity, there is a comprehensive unity, and there is a Trinitarian unity that is at stake here. Not at stake, but that is grounded, is grounding the unity of the church. So Paul is saying to us that in God, you have everything that you need to be united. <laughs> God has provided everything you need to be united. Think about that. I think in the midst of pressure situations, sometimes we're tempted to look a whole lot of other places for our unity. But here Paul is really simply saying, God is everything you need to be united. And he has provided you with the faith and with the baptism, and with the spirit, and with the calling, which is everything that you need to be united. So lean into it. Lean into it. I mean, I think one of the things that is most pertinent for us in this season is, is to fill our hearts and minds with grand thoughts of who God is and what God has done. I know I said this to you last week on Trinity Sunday and probably the weeks before, but I keep wanting to say it. We need to reflect upon things that are true, that are honorable, that are just, that are pure, that are lovely, that are commendable, that are excellent, that are worthy of praise. We need to think about the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the graciousness and the compassion and the care of God. Because if our hearts and minds are not filled, if our imaginations are not captured by that, if our wills are not formed by, by the beauty of God's character, and we're, we're not going to be united. Because unity comes from him and it's rooted in him. And so my brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you, like, like find ways, whether it's needing to read a book or or tuck scripture away in your pockets for throughout the day, or whether you need to fast through a certain form of media for a period of time in order to, 
reflect upon scripture, whatever it is, like find ways to fill your heart and imagination with the goodness and the beauty and the oneness of God, because that's going to be really key for us going forward. Now, one of the things that I really love about Paul is that he doesn't have this kind of unrealistic understanding of unity as just being bland, lifeless uniformity. <laughs> Paul, of all people, if you read his letters, understands that the church is full of a lot of people that are very diverse. <laughs> he understands that the church is often a very colorful place to exist and that it's often very messy and it's often not very neat. But Paul also understands that diversity is not necessarily a bad thing, that it can actually be part of God's gift to the church. And so, like, the third thing that Paul talks about in this passage is that unity is actually enriched by the diversity of our gifts that God gives to the church. And we see, we see kind of Paul unpacking this. He, he says, God, the risen and ascended Christ has has given gifts to the church and he names five different types of people here he names the apostles he names the prophets he names the evangelists and then the shepherds and the teachers and one of the one of the interesting things here is that paul has like lists of different gifts all over the new testament there's like 20 some odd gifts he mentions and i think there's a lot more than he mentions that the spirit gives to the church but these particular five gifts Paul mentions all relate in some way to the ministry of teaching. They all relate in some way to the ministry of teaching. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. In other words, I think Paul here is highlighting for us that God has, there are particular people that God gifts to the church that he entrusts to care for and to guide and to protect the church community. And the way they do that is by diligently and consistently and faithfully seeking the truth and proclaiming the truth of the gospel and the God of the gospel to the church so that minds are filled with the truth of Christ and imaginations captivated by the truth of Christ and character formed by the love of Christ. So I think what Paul is, is pointing us to here really interestingly is that amidst all of our diversity, God has given us particular people who are to teach us of all the richness that we have in Christ because it is precisely that richness that is going to empower us to be united and mature in the way that we relate to one another and the world. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verse 11. He says, all these teachers are not given so that they can be the ones that do all the ministry on behalf of everybody. No. Paul says, these people are given so that they can equip the saints, which in Paul's language is just every Christian, like all the people of God. They can equip all the people of God for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So these particular gifts are given by Christ. So that every single person in the church can be equipped and enabled and empowered to then minister to one another, to care for one another, to build one another up in love, to speak the truth in grace, to encourage one another to Christ's likeness and maturity. And so it's this kind of wonderful thing that, that Christ is on about building so that the whole body is working together in symmetry for the sake of the maturity of the whole. 
And in this season, um, honestly, I'm really thankful for this. <laughs> I'm really thankful to be at Holy Trinity because I think he has gifted us with some really unique people to help us with this. Like I've been so thankful for Jin Cho in, in the midst of all the racial tension because I think he is a prophetic gift to us as a church in this period. I'm so thankful for San Yika Calloway because I think she is a prophetic gift to us in this season of church and we need to hear their voices. I'm so thankful for Dennis Ockham in this season because he knows church history so well and he is so rooted and steeped in the scriptures and in rich theology that he gives a steadiness to our life as a church. And I'm so thankful that I've been able to receive from him in this season. We need a Dennis Ockham to keep us rooted in the past and in evenness in the way we respond in the season. I am so thankful for Tom Carmody and Alan Fadling and, and, and Kep. They have pastoral shepherding hearts that are almost unparalleled, caring for the flock, sensitive to the needs of people, interceding and praying on behalf of you. And like, I'm so thankful for other people that we have on our vestry and in our ministry teams and for Vivian, who have these like evangelistic hearts to, to bring the gospel outside of our walls and to bring it to the people in our culture who are really hurting right now and who desperately need good news. They need refreshment. They need life. They need encouragement. And I'm so thankful that we have people that are doing that in our community. And one of the questions that I have for us as a community is that we have these wonderful people. And I think in so many ways, they are equipping us by their example and by their words and by their deeds to be people who minister to one another in creative and generous ways as well. And so I think we should be asking that question in this time. I mean, yes, we have lots of limits, but like in what ways is the spirit of God gifting us to be a blessing to the whole community? I mean, for me, this has been challenging in these days. I really miss meeting with people. <laughs> it's, it's hard for me to know how to be a pastor, not physically present with people. It's hard. I just want to be close to you and, and, and have face-to-face -face conversations. One of the things that normally happens in my life for years now is that there will be times in the middle of the night or early in the morning, different things where God will just bring somebody's mind, uh, name to mind or heart or mind. And I, I just won't think of any, anything of it. I'll just move on and be like, oh, that was random. But recently I've been noticing that whenever I ignore it, I tend to find out a few days later that something happened to that person on that given day. Or that person's actually at a point of really struggling and wrestling in their life. So one of the things I've been doing in my own life in the recent weeks, just trying to encourage the body and trying to build up the body is just whenever somebody's um, name comes to mind, I just assume that it's a prompting of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I get out my phone or my computer and I just send a one line message and I just say, hey, for some reason, your name came to my heart and mind. And I just want to check in and see how you're doing. Literally one line to see how they're doing. You see, it doesn't have to be like these grand gestures. Building up the body can so often be these simple, habitual, little one-liners. And yet the spirit breathes in us and he moves in us because he wants all of us to grow together in unity and maturity in Christ.
And that's what Paul finally goes on to say is that he said unity and maturity in Christ means that there needs to be a certain stability to our life together. We cannot be constantly tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine, every wind. Like every new narrative and every new headline and every new theory that comes out about what's going on in the world, we cannot be swayed by all those things. We can't let those things like capture our imaginations in our hearts because we have a stability in Christ that goes much deeper than those things. And so Paul says, very important to be in the church in unity and maturity is not being tossed about by all these things, but being willing to speak the truth and love to one another. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this wonderful observation in, in Germany, he observed that we need our brothers and sisters to speak the gospel to us over and over and over again. And he said, this is why, because they will often see who we are in Christ and where we have gone astray better than we will. <laughs> it's a scary thing, but it's true. And so Paul says, speak the truth in love to one another. The truth in love, never apart, but always together. You see, last week, I, I spent time talking about how our speech needs to be guided by love and graciousness in the way that we speak to one another. But this week, I think Paul's encouraging us to think about that if we really care about the maturity and the unity of Christ's body, reflecting to, God, to God's world what God is on about in the world, then truth in our speech really matters. Truth really matters. Like we need to be rooted in the truth of who God is and the truth of his story and not easily swayed. We need to cultivate a culture in which truth speaking and truth telling is an okay thing to do. It's, it's, it's an important way of caring for one another. We have different personalities, so we respond to these things differently. Some of us have the personalities like, you're wrong and I'm going to tell you why. And we need to be reminded to chill out <laughs> and to love one another tenderly. But but some of us have this tendency to see others maybe maybe sometimes being moved away from the centrality of the truth in Christ. And we have a tendency to be like, oh, I'll just let that person do their thing. It's not my place to get involved. But Paul is saying, no, that's not how the body relates to each other. The body cares about each other by speaking truth in love. And in order to speak the truth in love, we're going to need the very virtues that Paul started off by talking about, like humility and gentleness and patience. We're going to need humility because we are going to need to be humble enough to receive a corrective word from someone and to listen carefully to a brother or sister when they suggest that we have gone off the tracks and we need to be restored to the truth of Christ. So we're going to need humility to receive that corrective word. On the other hand, we're going to need like gentleness to be able to speak a word of truth with gentleness and love and care, especially when we're concerned that it may offend or upset someone, we're gonna need that gentleness. And we're gonna need patience. When we speak words of truth to one another and somehow in the midst of it, we get hurt or we don't like what another person is saying or the way we said it, we're gonna to need to be patient with one another. But you see friends, we have to be willing to do these things to speak the truth in love. Because if we don't, there's no way we're gonna grow in maturity and unity. And there's no way we're going to reflect to the world the life and the light that God has for us to reflect. And so, my brothers and sisters, what are the truths that God wants to speak through you in this season? 
What are the truths that God wants to speak through you in this season? And what are the truths that maybe God wants to speak to you through another person in our church in this season? What are the truths, even if they're inconvenient, inconvenient, that God wants to speak to you through another person in our church in this season? See, in the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he has blessed us, note the plural, us, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the only way that we as individuals and as a church come to know and experience and taste and see the goodness of that every spiritual blessing is if us as a community speak the truth in love. Because we will experience different parts of that blessing. We will see different dynamics of that truth that we all have an ownership to in Christ. And so we need to share it with one. So friends, brothers and sisters, I speak these words of truth to you in love so that we may all be united and so that we may all grow into the maturity of Christ's likeness. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.